Hello and welcome to the Bible with Me podcast from Precept UK. We are a Christian charity based in Salisbury that equips people to know God deeply so they can live differently, using a wide range of Bible study resources for all ages and levels of understanding. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the ministry, and we would love to encourage you to seek the truth of God's Word for yourself using one of our inductive study books, available at precept.org.uk. Now without further ado, here's Nigel with the latest episode of the Bible with Me podcast. Well, it is a real great delight for me uh, to welcome uh, David Jackman to the podcast today. Uh, David is a former president of the Proclamation Trust, uh, an organisation that serves the local church by promoting the work of biblical expository preaching in the UK and overseas as well. Uh, For 14 years, he was the director of the Cornhill Training Course and before that was the minister of Above Bar Church in Southampton. Uh, David loves playing the piano. Uh, reading, walking, and also following sport, a man after my own heart. Uh, He is not so keen on DIY, also a man after my own heart. Uh, He's he's married to Heather, and together they have two children. Uh, So, David, welcome to the Bible and Me podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be with you, Nigel. Well, thank you so much for, for, for joining me today. Now, David, how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? And and why why do you follow Jesus? Well, I uh, had the great privilege of being born into a Christian family in that my mother and father were both uh, committed Christians. Um, and uh, so I was really taught about Jesus from the word go. Um, but I think often in children who grow up in Christian families, there is sometimes a moment at which you know that the things that were sort of in your head have come into your heart, really, and that the Lord is your saviour and your Lord. And that happened to me when I was about eight years old. And it happened through my father's Sunday school class. And uh, we had a, a lesson about making Jesus king of our lives and welcoming him into a, the centre of our lives. And um, I just uh, remember going home that night and in my bed praying that little chorus into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And uh, he did. And uh, that was the beginning, really, of a, of a childlike faith, which obviously has a long way to go, still does, actually, in terms of growing and maturing. But um, uh, I found him to be more wonderful than I ever imagined he could be. And from that moment onwards, there's been uh, obviously many uh, mistakes and steps back and so on, but a gradual progress in knowing him better and loving him more. And uh, why do I follow him now? Well, because he's my saviour. He's the one who died on the cross so that my sins can be forgiven and I can be liberated from that guilt. Um, He's my Lord. I asked him to come into my heart as the king of that heart and he's control he controls my life in the sense that uh, i want to walk his ways and do his will in his strength and he's my god and therefore i worship him and want my life to be to his praise and glory so if you say why do you follow him i would say because he's my savior my lord and my god and why wouldn't you follow such a wonderful savior (laughs) (laughs) oh that is fantastic that is so age eight gosh yeah yeah isn't that wonderful so so uh, young young lad really um yes yes it was 
it's very kind of God to open my heart at that age because, um, well, it saves you from some certain courses of action that you might have gone down. Uh, and in his mercy, he was uh, he was real to me even from that moment. No, that is that is great. Now, you grew up in the south of England. Uh, you attended school in Bournemouth uh, before gaining a place to study English at uh, Downing College uh, in Cambridge. And after Cambridge, you did a postgrad certificate in education at Exeter University. Uh, give us a taste of your sort of upbringing. Um, what was it like? Um, and also, um, what led you into education and teaching in those early days? Yes, well, I do give great thanks to God for my mum and dad, because um, I know that they were real Christians and I always knew that. I knew that it was real to them. It was the heart of their lives. It's an interesting story, really, because my father's father, my grandfather on the father's side, became a Christian through my mother's father, <laughs> uh, the grandfather on my mother's side. He was an evangelist who worked in the villages of Hampshire and Berkshire with the Christian brethren. And he took a, a, a mission to the village where my paternal grandfather was um, living and he became a Christian through my other grandfather's ministry <laughs> and then um, the daughter of the preacher married the son of the convert <laughs> so my parents <laughs> were, were um, brought together really through the evangelistic ministry of my grandfather so I knew that from the very beginning that Christianity was real that it affected their lives that um, it was something that um, wasn't just a spare time interest. You know, it was really governing our family life. Um, I'm an only child, so it was, uh, um, I, you could say it was quite a lonely time of growing up, though I never really felt lonely. I think I got my love of reading from that. I think, you know, I would often sort of curl up with a book. Um, I had good friends around in the place where we lived, and we did lots of things together as groups of boys do. But I think having being the only one in the family that gave me a love of reading and I was one of those strange children who always wanted to be a teacher mm. and my mother says I sort of lined up the teddy bears you know and gave them lessons and uh, and sometimes wanted to be a preacher so I would appear from behind the sofa on a Sunday and preach a short sermon to my mother and father uh, after lunch perhaps or something like that very strange but you know, I think God does, he, he, he wires us up a particular way. And um, so I always had a desire, I suppose, to communicate and to um, share things. The other big influence in my childhood from the age of eight onwards was that the minister of our church was, in fact, a very fine Bible teacher. And he was there from when I was eight and became a personal Christian to 16, which is quite a, a big chunk of life. Uh, and so I think I really grew in my appetite from, for the Bible through his ministry. He was very clear Bible teacher. He had a son who was a year older than me. We were best mates. I saw him working in his home environment, the minister. He wasn't sort of somebody, you know, remote in the church. And I think I probably thought to myself, I'd like to be like that. That's what I'd like to do with my life <laughs> at that stage. And I suppose I found I wasn't too bad at doing schoolwork and I enjoyed it and seemed to give me a sort of um, focus for my life. And um, uh, so 
you know, as one went on through school and people said, oh, you ought to go to university and why not try to go to Cambridge and so on, it all came together. And um, when I got to Downing College to read English, um, the uh, director of studies there was quite a famous man, a well-known critic called F.R. Leavis. And one of the things that he was doing was sending as many of his graduates out as he could into the schools to teach English in the schools because he believed English was the cultural salvation of the nation. <laughs> I didn't exactly share that idea of salvation, but, but it did prompt me to see the effectiveness and the, the you know, what one could do in uh, school teaching. And um, so I suppose all those, all those sorts of influences, they come together, don't they? And I began to see, well, perhaps this teaching thing is, is for me in my own career. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Now, now you took up employment, uh, actually, uh, teaching English at Portsmouth Grammar uh, for five years. And then you worked for the InterVarsity Fellowship, uh, now known as UCCF, um, as head of their universities department before going on to theological college. Uh, how did you go from being a teacher to then going on to formal theological training? And also, I understand that God provided financially for you to do this. Yes, he certainly did. I'll come to that in a moment. But I think the move was that, you know, here I am in Portsmouth, young teacher. I got involved with a church. Um, they say, come and talk to the youth group. Somebody from another church said, come and talk to our youth group. Um, somebody else said, Are you, I enjoyed the talk to the youth group. How about coming to preach on a Sunday? And so, you know, the opportunities to teach and preach multiplied. I was involved with a Bible study class group called Crusaders in those days, which was um, a boys' Bible study group. There were girls' branches as well, but they were separate um, sexes in those days. And um, uh, that was good because I had an opportunity every week to be teaching the Bible to some lads. And um, I think gradually I came to see that, well, I suppose I was being tempted to spend more time preparing my various talks than perhaps doing all my study for teaching English. And over the period of time, I began to pray, Lord, if you, I'd thought when I was an undergraduate, maybe one day I'll go into the ministry, but I didn't know about it at that stage. But I began to pray, Lord, if I'm going to stay in teaching, probably four or five years, I need to look for a different job, maybe look for some promotion. Um, or should it be ministry? So would you please show me? And I really do remember praying for several months that God would show me. I was helped by going to the Keswick Convention yes. in the mid-60s, where I think the call of ministry was um, was sounded loud and clear. Um, but the way it really happened was that within two or three months, I had a, an invitation from a local church to become the assistant minister, even though I had no theological training. They sort of thought, well, you don't really need much of that. Come and help us, which was flattering and would have been disastrous. Um, and at the same time, I had uh, something from the UCCF in Tavasti, as it was in those days, saying, we're looking for staff members. Um, would you like to come and have a conversation with us about joining the staff, which is what I did. Um, I wasn't sure of which to go for. I went to see a senior minister whom I really uh, respected. And he said to me, well, which do you think would be the more difficult? And I said, well, probably coping with all the students' arguments. He said, well, that's the one to do. <laughs> Always put you in the, in the place that's more difficult so that you grow. 
It's a good advice, very good advice. And um, uh, and so I joined the, the UCCF staff. And um, uh, during the six years I was with them, I became more and more convinced that I couldn't go back to teaching um, boys Shakespeare. They didn't particularly want to learn it anyway. And that I wanted to give my life to um, teaching, trying to teach the Bible. And um, uh, so that's how I then began to think, well, in that case, uh, I do need to get some theological training. By then, I was married. Uh, we had our first child, Nicholas. He was um, one year old when we went to theological college. But the thing was, of course, I came from a free church background. There were no funds for training in the ministry, no denominational support. So you had to support yourself. And my problem was, well, having worked for a Christian organization for six years, I didn't have anything in the bank. And uh, was this a foolish thing to sort of, I was prepared. My grandfather had lived by faith. I mean, he never had a salary when he was an evangelist. Um, okay, so maybe God's calling me to do this, but perhaps my faith wasn't strong enough at <laughs> that point. I just said, Lord, if you do want me to do this, please show me in some way that it's not being stupid. Yes. So, Coming home on the train one night, the uh, UCCF office was in central London and we lived in Ashford near um, Heathrow Airport. And coming home on the train one night, I um, sat opposite a, a chap I didn't. I sort of thought I might recognise him, but I didn't really know who he was. And here we are. This is what, about 1960? Uh, no, 1973, I suppose, around about that time. He sits in the train behind his newspaper and he looked across the newspaper and sort of nodded at me, which is a bit odd for a commuter train. But anyway, um, to, to, to shorten the story, he gradually put the newspaper down and he said to me, were you preaching at such and such a church last month? Uh, and I, I was doing some lay preaching at that time. And I said, yes, I was. He said, it was, I really found that very helpful, what you said. So he went back to his paper and then he came back and said, um, have you ever thought of going into the ministry? So I said, well, yes, I am thinking about it actually at this, this stage. And before he got out in the station before me, he said, um, well, here's my card. And if you do go to theological college, I'd like to pay half the first year's fees. <laughs> so I thought, well, thank you, Lord. I think that's an answer to prayer. I mean, it was an amazing provision. And he not only paid that year, he paid for the other years as well, uh, a contribution towards them. And so we went in faith and it was amazing how the Lord sent in the money that we needed from places that we would never have thought of, people that I would never have listed as being likely, you know, to support us. But over those years while we were at Trinity, we, we always had enough. We could always pay the fees and we never starved. And God was very, very good to us. It, it, I mean, it is it is remarkable if you think about what happened there in a train, a complete stranger probably to you, and and, and, that time. and God, God clearly wanted it to happen. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. where, where God calls, He provides, doesn't He? The question is, is He calling? Is He calling you? And clearly, He was calling you. <laughs> yes, by showing the beginning of the provision really yeah yeah it was it was a terrific privilege really yeah it mm. reminds me of a story um when i left the army myself and we were we were sort of struggling a little bit on that front and um we got home one day we, we used to have a motorhome actually and it was it was there was a problem with it and we didn't have the money to fix it 
and it was basically we took our family on holiday in the motorhome you know that was uh, what we did and um uh came home and there was an envelope on the on the mat and how the postman got it to our house i don't know because the writing was so scrawny and difficult to read uh, and it was from my 95 year old granny and uh i opened the letter and it basically said darlings um and she was a Christian woman, a uh, praying lady, but ne- didn't know our circ- financial circumstances at all. And she said, I think, I think you need this more than I do. <laughs> and it was a substantial check. And we sort of dropped to the floor, you know, chins to the floor, thinking, God, you are incredible, you know. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? I mean, it is It is just extraordinary. It doesn't happen every day of your life, of course. <laughs> but thank God for those one or two times when it does happen. And you, it's as though the Lord is saying, look, I am here and I am in control of this. And this yeah. is what you need. And trust me. Yeah, um, absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Now, on graduating from Trinity uh, in Bristol, uh, where you studied under the likes of uh, J. Alec Matia and J. I. Packer, um, you became, first of all, assistant minister of Above Bar Church in Southampton, and then its senior minister, uh, and were there uh, some 15 years in all. Um, so a couple of questions related to this. Um, what are your memories of studying under the likes of J. Alec Matia and J. I. Packer? <laughs> for those that don't know those names, you may just want to set the scene for those guys. And, and what are some of the things you saw God do whilst you were at Above Bar? And why do you think he was doing that? First of all, um, being at Trinity under Alec and Jim, as we were allowed to call them, uh, was an enormous privilege. It was a life-changing privilege, I would say to me. I think those years at Trinity were absolutely formative for everything that's followed. What do I remember? I remember Alec's Hebrew verb tests at 9am on a Monday morning, (laughs) not always distinguishing myself. Um, I remember Jim Packer preaching uh teaching from two till six on a monday afternoon four different lecture hours with a cup of tea for 10 minutes in the middle doctrine of god two o'clock doctrine of sin and salvation three o'clock um puritan theology of prayer four o'clock um mission and world evangelism five o'clock stagger out at six o'clock but you know that you've sat at the feet of a an absolute master really so it was a huge, huge privilege to be there. I'm very thankful to the Lord. I wasn't an Anglican. It's an Anglican college, still is. Um, but John Stott said to me when I asked him what he thought about training, why don't you go to Trinity Bristol? And I said, well, I'm not an Anglican. He said, oh, well, they'll have a few non-Anglicans. They were very kind. They didn't try to um, change our, um, our churchmanship, but they were very warm and welcoming. It was a gospel college. It was a Bible college. That's what they were concerned about. And I shall always be thankful to the Lord because I saw their love for the Lord. I saw the dedicated work they did. They were such good workmen. Um, Alec Matea used to have in his study a, a mantel shelf over the fireplace in which there must have been 20 or 30 little greenback binders in which were written all his thoughts on Isaiah that in the end became the great commentary that he wrote on Isaiah. But you know, it was years and years of work that these men put in. And I think I saw their humility, their depth of godliness, uh, but also their humanity. We had lots of laughs. (laughs) And J. 
Jim Packer used to always produce his lecture notes on pink sheets. <laughs> I think he must have got a cheap deal on them or something. And one brave student one day in the question session said, um, Dr. Packer, why are your sheets always pink? To which uh, he replied, roses are red, violets are blue, sheets are pink. Let's get on with it. <laughs> and that was, but we did have good times and the fellowship was great. So I went to Southampton, very thankful for the time we had there. Yeah. And while we were at Above Bar, the Lord was so gracious and good to us because what happened was that the old church building, which was a Victorian building without any architectural merit whatsoever, even the Victorian society could find no reason to keep it. It was demolished um, at the church's instigation and a new building was built with shops on the ground floor and we had three floors above the shop. So it released the value of the site in the main shopping street. Uh, for the church to be able to build a new building. And during that time, Leith Samuel, who was my senior uh, when I arrived, retired, and I took over during the time we were away from the building. So when we came into the new building, um, I was a year or two into being the senior minister. And, of course, people were very interested in this new church building in the main street of Southampton. And that gave us a little bit of a momentum to move forward. And... Um, uh, but I think, I mean, the church in the goodness of God, the church grew a great deal during that time. And it is God who does it. I, I mean, I'm a great believer in that verse that says only God makes things grow. Uh, one plants, you know, one sows yeah. another waters, but only God makes it grow. And I don't know why in his mercy he made it grow as he did, except that I do know that we tried to preach the Bible yeah. week in, week out, consecutively relevantly in an applied way mm. and where the word of god where the bible's in the driving seat mm. the church grows mm. wow. people come they want to know what is god saying is there a word from the lord mm. and lots of people came to faith during that time and other people um moved into the city and came and joined us and very gifted and able people that strengthened the work i had a great team Eventually, when I started off, there were very few of us, but eventually I had a great team working together. And those 15 years were a wonderful experience of God's kindness and grace and building the church. Lots of mistakes, um, lots of things looking back that you think we should have done it better. But that's growing, isn't it? That's what we all experience. But God, in his goodness, gave us a season uh, of particular fruitfulness, I think. And, yeah, yeah. I love what you said there, where the Bible is in the driving seat, the church grows. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Faithful preaching of God's word. Now, after 15 years at the Above Bar Church, uh, you were recruited uh, by Dick Lucas to found the Cornhill training course. Um, why do you think Dick Lucas recruited you? And you don't need to be modest about that. And tell us about the years... Uh, sorry, tell us about the early days of the Cornhill training course uh, and what were you seeking to put in place? And for those that may not know who Dick Lucas is, just explain that as well. Yeah. Yes, Dick Lucas was the minister of um, a city church called St. Helens Bishopsgate. He came in 1961 when there was about 12 people in the congregation and he preached the Bible. He started with the city businessmen lunchtime services um, and soon there were hundreds coming to St. Helens at lunchtime just for a it was 40 minutes, the whole thing. 
Um, and uh, many men converted to trust in Christ and many Christians nurtured and encouraged. And then he added Sunday services after that, um, evening service to start with, with students and young city workers. And then as they grew up and well, grew older and married and had children, family services on Sunday morning. So when we got there in 1991, it was a huge and thriving church. And um, he'd been there 30 years at that point. But a bit of history on this. Um, he started, you see, I think in the 1980s, there was a lot of excitement about new demonstrations of spiritual power. Um, the charismatic movement was very strong at the time. One of the negative sides of that was that people tended to think that preaching was old hat and that uh, it was outdated and we had to move on to all sorts of new, more exciting things. And some of us knew that that was not the right course of action because the seed is the word and if the word is not being sown there won't be a spiritual harvest however enthusiastic we might be about what we're trying to do some of us were free church pastors who had worked for uccf there were several of us and we got a little group that we called the free thinkers because we were free church and we wanted to think and we wanted to ask about you know how do we grow a new generation of Bible teachers in the churches because it was being swept out really. At the same time, unbeknownst to us, Dick Lucas was running preaching classes for Anglican ministers. And um, this later became the Proclamation Trust. But we thought, well, the free thinkers, we'd love to have a conference in London and get together a group of other pastors. And so um, somebody said, well, where should we do it? And um, St. Helens, Dick's church, had a, another church building called St. Andrew's adjacent to it, which um, they used more like a church hall. So I rang up Dick Lucas, whom I'd met through UCCF, and uh, said, could we possibly borrow it? And he said, oh, yes, of course. And he en enabled us to have our conference there. And I think he came and sat in the back for a session or two. And um, he said to me afterwards, when I rang him up to say, could we do it again next year? He said, yes, but... Why should we do separately what we could do together? And I thought that was that was a turning point, actually, I think, in the goodness of God. Um, and so he said, um, he said to me, well, why don't we uh, have a joint conference? And we'll call it the Evangelical Ministry Assembly. Uh, the EMA is quite well known now because it started in 1984 and it's run every every year since. And thousands of ministers have been to that over the years so we started that in 84 and then in 86 when he'd been at St Helens for 25 years the um, leaders of the church said how can we recognize this um, and we know you don't want a silver teapot what should we do so he said well why don't we found a, um, a, a trust to enable others to seek to do what we've been seeking to do here and to train and equip a new generation to do it. And so in 86, it began. And by that time, he and I were co-chairing EMA. And then in 1990, he said to me, you're going to spend the rest of your life in Southampton? And I said, well, tell me about it. And uh, he said, well, we'd like you to come and start this course because a lot of the ministers who are benefiting from what we're doing are saying if only we had this earlier 
And we'd like to try and reach young men who are going into ministry or thinking about ministry and give them a year's training before they go to theological college and a year in which they can prove their gifts. If they've got those gifts, they can test out whether the ministry is for them or not. Because at those days, you just sort of had to sell up and go to college for three years. And if it wasn't for you, it was a disastrous mistake. So we wanted to give them opportunity to sort of prove their gifts. Yeah, very good. And, um, and he said, well, I'd like you to come and do it because you've had the experience of being at Southampton and we've worked together through these conferences. And that's how it all happened. Fantastic, fantastic. I love what he, he said there about, you know, why not let's do it together rather than separately? Yes. I mean, you know, yes. Psalm 133 doesn't it talk about, um, you know, God, uh, it's, it's a blessing to God when, when brothers dwell in yeah, unity. How good it is when brothers are in unity, yes, yes. And so isn't that great? Isn't that great? But he obviously recognised your, your gifts there. Now, how has God used the Cornhill training course over the years? And, and maybe just... Um, to give people a taste for what it is and then but how's God used it and then I'll ask a separate question about uh, maybe encouraging people to attend such a course well it was set up really to give people the opportunity of a year's study of the bible but it particularly not in terms of bible knowledge per se um, but in terms of developing skills about how to read understand and communicate the bible so it's not an academic course in the sense of there are there are no exams um uh every everything that people do they uh, prepare little talks five minute ten minute fifteen minute talks so that their study is always channeled into the practical business of preaching and teaching the bible so they don't write essays but they do write lots of talks <laughs> and uh, and we listen to them and lovingly critique them <laughs> and uh, and try and help people you know to do the job better we're all in the learning game together so we wanted to set up a year when people could do that uh, on a full-time course and um what happened after that was that people started to say well I can't give a year but I could give half a week uh, over two years instead of a whole week in one year so we gradually um, developed um, a, 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 a situation where we did four days of teaching, one day of study, and you could either do it over two years, half and half, or you could do the whole thing in one year. And the half and half option became much more popular because what happened was the churches said, ah, well, you can work for us in the second half of the week. So they got sort of apprentices or um, you know, trainees that they could work with, which was brilliant because it meant that our students had output into the real situation of church life. They weren't in some sort of cocoon of academic study. Yeah. And uh, I think that was tremendously helpful for people. They began to get the feel of ministry, to see it working out in practice. And um, so that's why we set it up. And over the years, uh, in the goodness of God, there have been many hundreds of people, men and women, who've been through it. Um, we've always had a, a strong women's stream with women teaching women. Um, we've always had um, youth work uh, training as well, youth and children's ministries. Um, numbers of our folks have gone abroad, serving and training afterwards. Any sort of ministry, really, in which you need, well, every ministry, you need to be a good Bible handler. Yeah. 
So that's what we're trying to do, to give people the skills to be, as 2 Timothy says, workmen who don't need to be ashamed, who rightly handle the word of truth. And in the goodness of God, that's happened uh, with lots of people over the years. And something that we never foresaw, it's now got a big international ingredients because lots of people have come from overseas countries to Cornhill on bursaries which are being kindly provided by Christians here in the UK and of course what they then say is we must go back home and do this <laughs> and so that's what's happened really and there are lots of offshoots of Cornhill in different parts of the world even in the UK we have one in Glasgow and one in Belfast now as well as the one in London and it's still growing. I mean, with the Zoom and the lockdown. Yeah. In fact, this year, everything's been on um, on Zoom. But it means that we've had people from all over the world. We've had a little pre prayer, uh, preaching class group in Mandarin in Shanghai this year uh, through Zoom, because we've got a Mandarin speaker in London who can chair that group. And, um, you know, it's just wonderful how God makes things grow. So, um praise be to the lord it's all his work we didn't have that in view at all but god has done these wonderful multiplications <laughs> well you know he calls us isn't doesn't he to faithfulness and and to do what he has called us to do and 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 uh i love what you you know you you were doing what god has called you to do with your skills and abilities and you you just faithful to do that and god takes that and then use it like the multiplication of the loaves and fishes isn't it um you know and i think i often say to people you know we don't want to look back um on our deathbeds and look back and think you know what i missed it i could have i sensed god calling me to do this but i didn't trust him or i didn't x and r and you know we don't want to have those regrets do we um oh, no that's right seize the moment uh and and i've been a great believer you know in that verse well gamaliel isn't it in the acts of the apostles who says if it is of god yes. it will prosper yeah. and if it isn't of god it won't and yeah. you see that as you go on in the christian life yeah and so you just want to be operating well available to operate where god wants you to be really yeah 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 um, how would you, uh, what would you say to someone who may be listening to this podcast to encourage them to attend the Cornhill training course? I mean, how, how would they get on it? And I mean, what would you say to them? If you go to the website, <laughs> Cornhill training course, um, all the um, materials are there for applying for the course. Uh, it's, it's changed quite a bit now in that you can do it one day a week um, over a period of time. So there's um, the present director is a man called Nigel Stiles. And um, you can do um, F1 and F2, which is a Monday or a Tuesday, the first level of the course. There's a next level called uh, the core course, which operates on a Thursday or a Friday. And then there's something called Cornhill Plus, which takes you a little bit further if you are in ministry and you want to do some extra study. But it's all explained on the website. I think the advantage is, as I say, it's not... I mean, there's a lot of knowledge that comes through it, but it's not a knowledge-based course. It's a more practical training course. It's how to, it's a how-to course yeah. in terms of understanding and and uh, communicating scripture. Yeah, wonderful. That that is great. So people need not feel, you know, people say to me, "Oh, I couldn't write essays." We well, don't have to. Uh, <laughs> you have to prepare little talks, and how you're going to get this across to your women's study group 
how you're going to get this across to the Young People's Fellowship or whatever it is. All the training is with a view to the practical ministry yeah. um, rather than simply head knowledge. Yeah, very good. Very good. Very good. Now, we could spend hours talking about God's word. Together. <laughs> I really would love nothing more. Honestly, I would love nothing more. Um, what are some of the foundational principles that you would wish to communicate to those listening about the word of God itself? And how to communicate it. And this will give a taste uh, to people of of what is at the heart of what you do. I think good communication comes from good listening. So what we try to do is to develop our listening skills to scripture. Uh, You could call them observation skills because we're looking at pages of print. But they're really listening skills. God speaking to us through his word. So we try and develop those. We especially encourage people to ask questions of the text. We usually make progress when we ask, why does it say it like that? Why, why does it say it here? You know, what, why does that go before that? And all those sorts of questions to think it through, um, set the text in its context, um, whether that's the whole Bible or the book that it's part of or the immediate context in the place where the text is. Uh, by text, I don't just mean one verse. It may be a paragraph. It may be a narrative story. And to work with different genres of the Bible, narrative, poetry, um, prophecy, um, uh, epistles, wisdom. There's lots of different types of Bible literature. So those are the sorts of things that we're trying to do. But the big thing, I think, is the Bible in the driving seat. Mm. Um, That's what the Bible drives the message. I don't have to go to the Bible and find a message and make it say something. My job is to expose what the Bible is saying, first to my own heart and deal with me, and then hopefully in God's goodness through me to help others to see that, that message. So that's what I would say. If you wanted it in, a, in a one sort of phrase, I think it's the Bible in the driving seat, not in the boot, not in the back seat, not in the passenger seat to give you advice, but driving the car. Because then Jesus is driving the car because it's his living and enduring word. Yeah, yeah, that is that is so good to hear. That is so good to hear. And 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 in that there's a submission to the authority of the text to to understand what the Bible is. I mean, you know, because of course there are all sorts of theologies out there that that will may discount oh the Bible, yes, yeah, it contains the word of God or you know, and all these arguments that you you have. And of course, Actually, if you're going, if the Bible is going to be in the driving seat, then one needs to understand what the Bible is. <laughs> and of course, we would spend quite a bit of time at the beginning trying to encourage those convictions in the people who come to study. Some of them have them already, but not everybody's really sorted out on that. And it's absolutely vital. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you've written a number of books and preached widely in many different contexts, uh, including large Christian conventions, such as Keswick, Word Alive and others and also overseas. Um, what motivates you to write and to speak? I think partly gratitude to God for all that I've learned from his word. I think you know you're a teacher if when God says teaches you something, you think, oh, I want to pass that on to others. <laughs> and I think if you have a teaching gift, that demonstrates in that way. And so in for me to learn something and not want to tell other people 
would be very odd. <laughs> so it's partly gratitude to the Lord for what I've learned and I'm learning, not only from the word, but from the people too. Um, I've got that conviction that it is the word that does the work, what we were just saying, really, that God's word has the power to transform people's lives. And I've seen that over and over again. Um, and I think the other thing that motivates me is that there is a desperate need for teaching. So many people looking for Bible teaching and not knowing where to find it. I know a huge number of people would never think about opening the Bible, but there are many people who have some understanding of Christianity, but no great depth because nobody's really taught them it yes. in a way that they could uh, appreciate and relate to. And um, I find that when people do hear the word of God being taught, they really appreciate it. They're so thankful for it. Yeah. And um, that to me is another motivation to keep on trying to do it. Yeah, yeah that is, that is, um, yeah, I love what you said there about if you, uh, you know, you've got a teaching gift is, is once you've learned something, you want to pass it on. Uh, yes, because you don't want to hold it in, do you? You, you, you literally want to pass it on to others so they can have the joy that you've, you've had. Yes, indeed yes it's a sharing of the joy yeah 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 now before the interview you cited one of your struggles as moving out of pietism into a more holistic faith what did you mean by this <laughs> it is a bit of a shorthand statement isn't it um <laughs> i think it is, what i meant was this a pietism is a an evangelical tradition that has deep personal relationship and devotion to Jesus as being at its heart. And I've certainly not moved on from that. I think that is its great strength. But with that, there often comes a sort of introversion, which says, you know, is always taking one's spiritual temperature, always looking at your own spiritual health. It becomes really ingrown. And that can happen in churches where the church then sort of is in a bubble of like-minded people who accept a lot of things that people outside don't accept, but the church never actually gets beyond the bubble. It doesn't communicate to the world in which it lives. And I think the, the reason I grew up a little bit in that pietistic tradition, which I knew was real and genuine, but I was always wondering how do you build the bridges to the world? How do you, you know, your mates at school, how do you get through to them? And when they came to church, sometimes they found it very sort of ingrown. And um, what helped me was really reading the works of Francis Schaeffer, who was an American theologian and pastor teacher. He founded the Labrie Fellowship. And um, his um, big thing is that there is no division between the sacred and the secular that everything belongs to God. It is God's world. Every inch of this world is God's. And therefore, everything in this world can be used by God to his glory and to our growth and benefit. And um, uh, one of the verses he used often to quote was that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. So things like music and literature are not a waste of time. It's not that you have to put all those on one side and just just simply do evangelism or simply do Christian work. Um, you are, a, we are human beings. <laughs> we do have lots of us, many different sorts of gifts and talents that God has built into us. And I think what helped me was to see that all of those things were valuable and that it 
it was not a waste of time um, to do my piano playing, for example. I didn't have to play hymns all the time. <laughs> you know, you could play other sorts of music. Um, and uh, it took me a while to get there, but I'm so thankful to God because I think it was very liberating for me and therefore enriching. That that is that is one yeah that really is lovely to hear you say that. Um, yes, we we have got uh, you know God in His grace gives people different talents, doesn't He? And and why shouldn't those talents uh, be enjoyed <laughs> and also used um, used to God's glory? And who knows, you know, while you're playing your piano, you may meet some other piano players, and uh, you can build up a friendship and start talking about Jesus with them. <laughs> I mean, there's no division, is there? It's all a whole, it's a whole life. That's yeah. what I, I think is the thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Jesus is at the center of it. Our devotion to him is what matters most, but that can spill out, that spills out into every aspect of our lives. And as you say, we're all different, which is how the gospel spreads. Yeah. Yeah. That is great. Now, um, a question about the spiritual temperature of our nation today. If you were to dip a thermometer into that, what would be your assessment of the spiritual health of our nation? And why would you say what you say? I, I, I Sadly, I think we're in desperate spiritual need. I think um, uh, we have rampant secularism in on every side of us, really. And the... Christian heritage that certainly my generation growing up had, my grandchildren don't encounter in the same way at all. Um, and um, I think if I had to sum up the situation, I was thinking about this before we had our conversation. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, I think, says it very well, if I can just read that verse. Dude. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And I think that's our situation. There is a lot of spiritual blindness. It's interesting that Paul goes on to say, so we proclaim Christ. <laughs> you know, okay, so there's blindness, but we preach Jesus and the light of God shines from the face of Jesus Christ in transforming power. So I do think we're in a, in a very... Um, needy state spiritually um but and why do you why do you say why do you think that is given our heritage given you know we we sent wonderful preachers overseas and that have had traumatic effect in in different countries and you know it seems sometimes now that those countries are sending missionaries back to our to our lands i, I mean why why is that why is that why has our nation got to this state you know we've got churches across the nation we've got this wonderful heritage i mean is it something to do with the world wars do you think or the liberalism of the 60s or why do you think it is why why do people's hearts not why why is our nation's heart christian heart sort of moved away from that devotion to who god is uh, well i think there are lots and lots of reasons, and we could do a whole podcast on the reasons, I'm sure. But I think the um, verse that comes to my mind is, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, uh, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the J.B. Phillips translation of Romans 12, 2. Um, don't let the world squeeze you. I think what's happened is that the church 
has been squeezed into the mold of the world. And we've bought into the worldly sort of values. So, you know, the big church, the successful church, the church that is a church of multi-talents, that's what people are sort of looking for. Perhaps more important often to us than the faithful church, the sacrificial church, the church that's prepared to be regarded as Paul was, as the off-scouring of humanity. Um, and then we don't have a message that's distinctive. We don't have anything really. I mean, we, we obviously, Christ is preached and people talk about Jesus making a difference, but is it seen enough in our lives? Does it work out in our communities? I don't think we can simply say it's all, you know, the, the fault of the world in turning against God, though obviously there is a determination to turn against God, sadly, amongst many. But where is the salt? Where is the light? Where's the city set on the hill that cannot be hidden? And I think that's where we've got to start, not poking, uh, you know, putting our fingers, um, as it were, uh, on the world's failures, but looking at ourselves and repenting of our double mindedness and asking God to graciously revive and renew our vision of the power of the gospel, the power of the word to transform lives and then praying, praying, praying that God will use what is going on and there's lots of good things going on yeah. but praying for a real outpouring of the spirit upon this because only god can do that yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 god have mercy on our nation yeah, yeah. yes Absolutely. yes now um we, we've obviously talked quite a bit about the word of god but i ask all all folks on the podcast these questions why is the word of god so important to you <laughs> because it is the word of god <laughs> i mean if this is if christianity is true and of course i believe with all my heart that it is but if it is true then this is the most incredible and wonderful thing that the god who has made all things sustains all things and in the end will bring all things to a conclusion communicates to us he has words 66 books full of them uh for us and when the Bible describes itself as the living and enduring word of God, living because it brings life, but also because Christ is the incarnate word of God, who's alive, resurrected and powerful forever. And the enduring word of God, because the great thing about the Bible is you never have to unlearn anything that you learn. Um, there's never, you know, you never say, oh, well, we've moved on from there now and our knowledge is such that that is regarded as old hat and uh, out of date. That may be true in other subjects of study, but it's not true of the Bible because it is the eternal word of the eternal God. Um, so that's why it's important. And because it's a life giving word. So Jesus uh, said, didn't he, that um, it's the spirit who gives life. And then he said, the words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. And so the spirit of God takes the word of God to do the work of God. And that's why the Bible is so important to me, because heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never pass away. Yeah, 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 yeah. Amen. Amen. Now, this is a bit of a cheeky question to someone of your stature. Um do you have a favourite Bible book or character? <laughs> and you're not allowed to say all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say 
the one that I'm working on at the moment, <laughs> which I think is true, actually. I think when you get into a Bible book, you think, why haven't I studied this one so much before? This is a wonderful book. Um, so there is that sense in which whatever you're working on, um, if it was a sort of one book out of the 66 that you could take on your desert island, yeah. I think I'd say Ephesians. Uh, because Ephesians is just a wonderful statement of the gospel in the first three chapters, uh, in all its depth and breadth and height, and um, and then a wonderful application of that in terms of Christian living in the last three chapters. And I suppose I've taught and preached it a lot during my life, but it is a favourite with me. Character, Caleb. Caleb in Joshua 14. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not quite Caleb's age yet but I'm on the way yeah. <laughs> uh, Caleb was 85 yes. when he came to Joshua and said you know God promised me this hill country I'm going to go out and get it now and for 45 years since he was a uh, spying out the land in numbers he's been faithful to God and God's been faithful to him and I love the story of Caleb because three times in the story in Joshua 14, it says he followed the Lord wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. And I love the psalm prayer that says, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. So my character is Caleb because I want to be wholehearted and I know that my heart is deceitful and that I won't be wholehearted unless by God's mercy and grace he goes on transforming it. But what a thing to think, 85, let's go get those giants, the Anakites, and let's take the land that God has promised. And I think, you know, storming on to glory is Caleb, and it would be great to do that in my remaining years. <laughs> I mean, it is amazing, these Bible characters. Are, you know, Abraham called at 75. Moses, you know, starting his journey out aged 80. Yes, um, yes. And having spent 40 years in the wilderness. Um, so. Yeah, age is not a barrier to be used by God for anything, is it, really? Um, in fact, you know, people may do their greatest work in the late, later stages of life. I think that's true. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, this is a very difficult one. Uh, what about a favourite Bible verse? Well, my wife and I have two that we've sort of made our own, I suppose, in the years of our marriage, which is 51 years this year. Well, um, so... Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> so Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Mm -hmm. And from the moment that guy offered to pay my fees, you know, all the way through life, God has added to me the things that I needed materially, and he's blessed me beyond anything I would ever have imagined um, in those ways, um, but spiritually, supremely, of course, because those are the blessings that last so that's one. The other verse is Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, which is a favorite verse with lots of people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. There's the wholeheartedness again, like Caleb. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And I think that is saying, if you lean on your own understanding, you won't be trusting the Lord with all your heart. But if you put him first, you know that your own understanding isn't anything to lean on. <laughs> it's 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 him uh, that you want to lean on yeah. and then it goes on to say in all your ways acknowledge him that is recognize him as god in everything you do and he will make your path straight which doesn't mean easy and without problems 
but straight in the sense of there'll be a clear direction. You'll know what your life's about, where you're going and what you're doing. And uh, so those verses have been really precious to us. Mm. And um, as you say, it's hard to choose one, but they, I chose those two because we often come back to them together. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is, that is, that is great. That is great. Now, what is next for David Chapman? <laughs> and how how could we pray for you? <laughs> well, only the Lord knows the answer to that. <laughs> um, uh, I hope to keep preaching and writing while the Lord gives me strength and energy to do it. Um, but um, he knows what he has for me to do for the rest of the time that he wants me to be here. Uh, the great thing as a Christian is that we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And therefore, the ultimate end of it all is is uh, in his gracious care and in his hands. But um, one of the things as growing up in a Christian family and a fairly traditional one and being a pianist, I did pray lots and lots of hymns. And I do know the words of lots and lots of hymns. And uh, one of the hymns that I often return to is the one that says, God, God holds the key of all unknown. And I am glad if other hands should hold the key or if he trusted it to me, I might be sad. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's a great little old hymn. It's a 19th century sort of um, Moody Sankey type hymn, you know, but it talks about um, God unlocking the doors. So I think what is next? Well, I hope to um, uh, be able to bring together um, a website in the next few months of various talks and preachings that I've done over the years, some from Southampton, some from London and Prop Trust and so on, because I do think people are hungry for exposition. And so I hope to be able to give some time to bringing some of these resources together as a, as a, as a free download website. And, um, uh, and the book that I've just started to get into is Jeremiah. So um, I'm hoping to possibly, um, it's a long way to go yet i'm not sure you know um when this will happen but it would be nice to perhaps produce um a study guide to jeremiah or something of that sort but the lord knows weeping prophet yeah yes prophet yes and the prophet who ministered to people in preparation for exile and in exile and i think to some extent we feel in the church that we are exiled people really so i'm wondering if jeremiah has particular things to say to us that's my present project oh, well we can be praying god's mercy and grace for you as you do that and, and continue to serve him as they say there's no there's no um retirement in a time of war uh, <laughs> that's right and uh well david uh honestly it's been I, I wish people could see sit here and see you as i'm seeing you with a big smile on your face and and full of the joy of the lord and and, uh, you know, God has used you in such an amazing way. And uh, I just think it's it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful journey. I mean, aged eight to come to that understanding at such a young age and, and to sense God's hand and uh, being prepared to do what he's called you to do and to be and to be faithful. We know he's faithful, but we're not always faithful. But you seem to have been faithful to to what he's called you to do. And he's led you and used you in the most wonderful, wonderful way. And there will be a harvest of souls in the kingdom as a result of your diligent labours. 
So just been wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you so much for uh, being willing to share your, something of your journey. And, you know, I hope lots of people sign up for for the Cornhill training. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Nigel. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's been a real privilege for me to share this with you. Thank you so much for the invitation. And together we can say to God be the glory. Amen to that. So thank you so much.